0: Quick disclaimer there's some stronger than usual violence this week. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more details. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of the Goose Girl, as told by the Grimm Brothers. You'll see why your coworkers might get mad if you spend your lunch breaks trying to steal their hair. And we'll meet a buff king who's really concerned with employee performance reviews. The creature this week is a werewolf who's really just a relaxed introvert trying to chill out alone in his fuzzy slippers. <laughs> This is Myths and Legends, episode 134, Thirsty. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. The story this week was collected by the Grimm Brothers, in what is now Germany in the early 1800s. The story takes place in a generally early modern setting, It's a fairy tale, so it's not really connected to anything religious like a myth or anything historical like a legend. And those are all the relevant details. So we'll just jump right in. It was opposite day or, yeah, or, life. In what feels like a fairy tale first, and is definitely a first for this podcast, the father had died an untimely death, and the mother was left as the sole ruler of the kingdom. Knowing full well she would lose half her power to any future spouses, the queen remained single. And so, the queen's daughter had no step-parent issues like every other fairy tale seems to bring. In fact, the princess grew, until she herself was of marriageable age, and the queen sought out a good match. There was no way her daughter would marry some budding sociopath, quick to send her to his murder room for simply getting blood on an egg. No, the queen thought beyond the most profitable match for herself in the kingdom. What would be best for her daughter? How did the visiting princes interact with not only their betters, but more importantly, with those below them? In the end, the queen ended up spending a small fortune, buying information from the suitor's servants. Her daughter was smart, but marrying her off meant putting her in a vulnerable position, and it had to be the right guy. Sure, the princess was a bit older when the queen finally made her decision, she was pushing 17, but it was done. Now, the father of the prince in consideration was a minor king, who was so in awe of the queen's insistence that her daughter's husband be his son, and of the promised dowry, that he immediately agreed. With a sigh of relief, the queen relaxed into her chair, her daughter was going to be all right. The kingdom was kind of far away, so the queen hired servants to pack up the dowry, which would follow the princess to her new home. Before parting ways, mom took the princess aside, clutching her hand. The queen stood holding back tears as she produced a knife. As long as the princess lived in her house, in her kingdom, the queen was able to protect her Here she had freedom, power, and the ability to speak her mind freely. The queen motioned to the walls. As soon as she stepped beyond these walls with the dowry, all that would change. The queen had chosen as good a husband as possible, but there were always surprises and deception. That's why the queen was doing this. As she spoke, she inched the blade closer and closer to her thumb, before pressing down firmly with a slice. Swiftly, she pulled out the towel, sopping up most of the blood it was then that she revealed an embroidered handkerchief. With it, she caught exactly three drops of blood. After bandaging her finger, the queen delicately folded the handkerchief and asked her daughter to tuck it in her dress, keeping it close to her heart. The princess did as her mother asked and, with a smile, assured her that she would be fine. She might be leaving, but she was going into the world that the queen had prepared her to face. It would be okay. At last... Queen hugged her daughter for what might be the final time. She liked her daughter's optimism, but she knew too much of the world to share it. Ah! That magic token of your mother's affection that'll protect you in the new kingdom? Asked the talking horse. The princess bumped along, calm and contemplative she nodded to Falada, the horse who was, curiously, one of the only named characters in the story. Falada would carry her to the new kingdom alongside a servant, one who had been her friend since childhood. Technically, the servant was a chambermaid, though she had functioned mainly as a lady-in-waiting for the young princess. The servant wasn't highborn like a lady-in-waiting would be, and yet, the queen had allowed her daughter to spend time with the girl and her family. Before long, the two girls had formed a close friendship in their youth. Now, the servant accompanied her to this new kingdom with the express command of the queen, watch out for the young princess. The servant swore she would, and it became her mission to protect the princess, like the sister she had, in many ways, become. The queen looked at the servant girl in the eye and grew very serious. The young woman, though she was the same age and though they had basically grown up together, was not the princess's sister, She was a servant, and when she arrived at the new kingdom, she would do well to remember her place. If the princess did well, the servant's family would do well. Her father might even be appointed to the nobility. Then, only then, could the servant begin to consider herself on better terms with the princess. Until then, she was a servant, and nothing more. The servant bowed low, and begged the queen's forgiveness. With a slight nod, the queen granted it, and dismissed the young woman but despite social rules and expectations, the princess did not feel the same way as her mother. To her, the servant girl was her sister. Between the lessons in a dozen different languages, the horseback riding, the stitching, everything her mother had packed into her life in order to mold her into a proper lady that could seek a good husband, her horse, Falada and the servant were her only constants, her only friends. With them by her side, the princess knew she could face whatever the world threw her way. And so, when it was time to leave, the princess left her home kingdom full of hope and accompanied by Falada, her servant and friend, and a half dozen soldiers. Together, they made their way to the new land, riding until morning faded to afternoon, and the princess began to feel the sun on her back. Her tongue stuck to the roof of her mouth. Holding up a hand, the princess called the small caravan to a halt. Turning to her servant, the princess shared that the queen had packed a golden goblet for her to drink from. It was dangling from the servant's saddle. Would the servant go to the river and fetch her some water? It was too hot out. The servant nodded, reaching for the goblet, and then paused. Her hand slid from the ornate, golden stem as she looked the princess straight in the eyes. A smile spread slowly across her face. No, said the servant. The princess laughed, confused. Please, I'm really thirsty. It was then that the servant arced her eyebrows in concern. Oh, really? She was thirsty? Oh, poor baby. That she should go get her own water. The princess was taken aback. What was going on? But I thought we were friends, she sputtered, trying to wrap her head around the situation. Friends? You know what friends don't do? The servant asked, jumping down from her horse. Command each other. Or maybe they do do that. And maybe we are friends. Ooh, ooh, then I want to do one. Go drink. Drink from the water, without a goblet. I want you to bend down into the water and drink like a dog. I'm tired of working for you. I did what I needed to do for my family, and now I'm finished. The princess couldn't believe what she was hearing. She turned to the soldiers who were just within an earshot of a yell. Oh, oh, are you going to complain to Hans? The servant scoffed the princess spun back to the servant. Who? The servant elaborated. Hans? The head guard? Or did the princess not even know his name? Huh. His son died in the war a few years back, and he just lost his wife to sickness. He paid the doctors everything before they told him it was hopeless, the servant continued. You know, the thing about the soldiers that the queen had sent was that they were strong. But this lot wasn't particularly clever. They hadn't yet realized that half days right out from the queen's walls, they could take the pretty little princess, take her massive dowry, and no one would ever know what happened either. But by all means, the princess should tell them that she's lost control of her chambermaid, a girl she's known since birth. That wouldn't backfire. A moment passed, and when the princess didn't yell out, her servant grinned. Very good. Now drink, dog. slowly, the princess climbed down from Flada, who, of course, had heard everything, and the princess carefully made her way to the river. Several of the guards made to follow, but the princess held up a hand. She would go alone. Only the servant watched, as she bent down in the mud on the riverbank and drank like an animal. Close to her chest, the three drops of blood that had soaked into the queen's handkerchief began to weep for the girl. They called out, If this your mother knew, her heart would break in two. Two more times this happened, and each time, the princess hoped that things would be different when she asked for water. Hadn't she and this girl been friends for years? Was it really not the case? Sadly, the answer was always the same. And just like that, the fairy tale's need for three was complete. And that's when the servant caught it. She rushed to the river's edge this time, before dashing to put something in her bag. The princess gasped as her hand flew to her chest. The handkerchief... It was gone. It had fluttered down while she was taking a drink. The gift from her mother, her only protection, gone. Blood magic is powerful. It's protection equally so, the servant said, looking into her bag. She looked up to the princess, still on her knees at the water's edge. But now it's gone. Hans, the servant yelled back to the soldiers. It's time. Within seconds, Princess felt the tip of a sword on the nape of her neck. An hour later, the entire caravan was on the move again, with one change. The servant now rode Falada, donning one of the princess's new dresses, one of the ones that she had packed. Not the one with mud stains from the river. That dress was now in the river, and the princess was wearing the servant's rags. At first, Falada had protested the change and all that was happening to her friend. But in the end, the loyal horse was given two options. Shut up and let the servant ride, or die, right here on the side of the road. They had a lot of horses after all. With a silent headshake from the princess, Falada snorted, and let the servant on. Oh, and before they left, there was one more thing left to do. The princess needed to make a promise, She needed to swear on her mother that she would never say anything about this to anyone. You see, the blood magic worked both ways. There was now a connection between the princess and the king. And if the princess broke that oath, well, the servant controlled the blood. She could do bad, bad things to the old queen before she finally let her die. The princess glared at the servant, at the girl who, up until today, she considered a dear friend. The servant flashed a smile. Ah, 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 no, no. The princess had been so perfectly submissive up until now. Why ruin it and risk a sword through her chest and her mother's life? After all, the receiving prince had no idea that there were two women in the group, and he didn't need to know. They could leave her here, and no one would ever know what happened to her. Impatiently, the servant made her demand again, take the oath. So, the princess swore... She swore on the life of her mother never to tell the truth of her circumstances to another human. The servant rolled her eyes. To anyone. We're in a fairy tale. Animals talk. Cookware does nightly dinner performances. Say it. Anyone. The princess wouldn't tell anyone. And so the princess reluctantly agreed. And the servant kicked Falada forward. Excellent. Now, they should really get going. Her husband was waiting. It wasn't long until the caravan arrived at the courtyard, and the eager prince ran out, swept his beaming bride off her horse, and led her inside to her new castle. As the servant learned all about her new kingdom, she made a point to note which of the money was for the dowry, and which money went to the soldiers who so bravely escorted her here. Both the king and the prince were confused. Weren't they supposed to get all the money? Still, it was more than the king ever expected to see in a dowry, so he was happy for it. The servant looked out the window, as the soldiers divided up the money, nodded at her, and started to make their way home. And what of the girl? The old king asked. He stood, eyes locked on the princess. She was extremely beautiful, and in stories where beauty literally equated goodness and high birth, this meant something. The servant cocked an eyebrow. What girl? Oh, the one crying in the courtyard. She'd almost forgotten. That was just some random girl they found on their journey here, obviously a nobody, but they brought her to the city anyway. The servant ran her fingers over the fine fabrics of her new dress. It didn't matter what the king and the prince did with the woman standing in the courtyard, just as long as it involved hard work. She seemed like a woman who got into trouble when she was idle. The king really didn't have any hard work for someone as beautiful as the princess in disguise. He didn't really have any work, but he didn't want to risk angering the new princess and her powerful mother, so he found a position far out in the fields. She would be the new goose girl. Perfect. Just then, the servant in disguise looked down at the courtyard one last time, and she remembered something. The horse. Fulata. The rightful princess was bound by her oath, but the talking horse, that was another issue. With a swallow, the servant in disguise turned and burst into tears. Her soon to be husband ran to her side, but she could barely speak she, that horse, it, it was horrible, it scared her, and it bit her, and it almost killed her on the way here, the prince comforted his fiance, saying he was so sorry, what did she want him to do, miraculously, tears stopped falling, and the servant could speak again, kill it, take off its head, Rightful princess stood shaking. She had seen Falada being led away that afternoon. She told her friend, the horse, it would be okay. She would find her when it was safe. But now, as she looked at the horse's head nailed above the exit she had to take every day, she was shocked at just how wrong she had been. To cover her crime, the servant had killed Falada, the only friend the princess still had in all the kingdom and she'd nailed the head above the very doorway that the princess took every day. The princess would have to watch her friends slowly rot. But there was something special about the princess, and there was something special about the horse. As the princess passed underneath the head, she heard a voice. Alas, young queen passing by, if this your mother knew, her heart would break in two. The princess gasped as she heard those words. Falada, how are you alive? She begged the horse's forgiveness for everything that had happened, for not keeping the horse safe like she promised. But Falada didn't respond. After looking down at the princess and uttering those words, her mouth fell slack once more, her eyes cloudy. She was dead, and the princess wondered if she had heard anything at all. The rightful princess was still thinking of Falada when she finally reached the fields. Truthfully, there was no goose girl position at all. There was, however... A goose boy. His name was Little Conrad, and there he was, sitting and staring at the geese. The princess sat down by his side, looked at him, looked at the geese, and then back at him. Is this... Is this it? Little Conrad turned to face the princess. It? You mean, wow, this is it. What a lucky break, right? Because that's what this is. It might be different for beautiful young maids, but Goose Boy is like the best job out there. He wasn't toiling away in some mine or hot kitchen or running after the orders of some nobleman. No, he was watching geese. This wasn't a good gig. It was a great gig, if you could keep it. The princess shrugged. Sure, whatever. And together they watched the geese until about midday when Conrad took a break from all the sitting and staring to have lunch. He dug into his bread, and that's when he found himself blinded by the glare. He turned, and there, on the goose girl's head, was gold. Pure gold. He'd never seen anything so beautiful in all his life. Why are you looking at me like that? Asked the princess. she had just taken down her hair to comb it. She couldn't afford lunch. Honestly, she had barely found a place to sleep last night and now this little weirdo wouldn't take his eyes off her hair. Then, to her surprise, he wouldn't take his hands off her hair. The goose girl screamed, demanding to know what this kid was doing, but he continued pulling at her hair, saying that he didn't care about his cush job anymore. She had gold on her head. Gold. And it would be his. But the princess wouldn't go down without a fight. She slapped him. This was her hair. She had lost her kingdom, her horse, everything she owned. She would not have her hair taken as well. And then, something strange happened. Well, stranger. The story doesn't explain how she knew to do this. And it certainly isn't my first inclination whenever I'm in trouble. But in a panic, the princess called upon the wind. That's right, the wind. And it worked. As she struggled to hold little Conrad at bay, she managed to call for help. Blow, wind, blow. Take Conrad's hat and make him chase it until I have braided my hair and tied it up again. Maybe she was surprised. Maybe it awakened a power in her that she always knew she had. But when she uttered that sentence, the wind picked up and little Conrad's cap blew from his head. Amazed or not, the princess wasted no time. She re-braided her hair, tying off the final ends, just as little Conrad returned, cap in hand and quite out of breath. He looked her up and down in confusion, speechless at all that had just taken place. Without a word, he sat next to the princess and resumed the hard, taxing work of watching the geese. Later, as the goose boy yammered on and on, the king couldn't help but facepalm from his throne. He held up a hand. I'm going to stop you right there, he said to the goose boy. I'm not the one who needs to be hearing this. There's your supervisor, then their manager, then the assistant regional manager, regional manager, and then me. There's a whole chain of command for situations like this. I don't even know how you got in here. But the goose boy was undeterred, so the king sighed, rolled his eyes, and waved for him to go on. Okay, so get this, the boy continued. There was this new girl at work, right? Well, apparently, she had gold on her head, but she got mad any time he tried to steal it. It had been three days now and he was still going for it. He would be as rich as the king if he got it. The king rolled his hand in the air, urging the prince to get on with it already. That was the girl's hair. He was trying to steal her hair. The goose boy slumped, one hand feeling his chin. Oh. Yeah. Huh. The combing and the braiding and the screaming, eh, that all made sense. Learn something new every day, am I right? That, uh... Still didn't explain the wind, though. Wind, the king asked. Little Conrad snapped too, telling the king what the goose girl had said every day for the last three days, about asking the wind to come take his cap. Then, lo and behold, it obeyed. But that wasn't even the weirdest thing, little Conrad said, looking up at the king. Every day, when she and little Conrad herded the geese out onto the wall, a severed horse head talked to the goose girl, the goose boy had the king's full attention now. It said, Alas, young queen passing by, if this your mother knew, her heart would break in two. Little Conrad didn't know what it meant, but try having your day start with a disembodied, rotting horse head nailed to a wall, spouting gibberish at you. Not a great day. The king was about to tell the boy that all this was ridiculous, but then he thought about it. The boy was asking to be removed from his very easy job. There had to be something more going on here. In this talk of a queen, the king had long suspected that there was something different about the goose girl. That's why he made her the goose girl instead of just sending her away. Go back to work, he told the goose boy. Little Conrad started to protest, but the king shot him back a warning glance. Do not push your luck. Quickly, little Conrad nodded and left. The next day, amidst the honking and the flapping of wings as the pair left the city, they heard, again, the horse saying, Alas, young queen, passing by, if this your mother knew, her heart would break in two. It seemed like every other day, but what they didn't know was that, following within earshot, was a stooped beggar, that must have just arrived at the city that morning, because no one had ever seen him before. With his surprisingly strong core, the disguised king army crawled a half mile trek through the grass, to the outer field, completely unnoticed by the goose girl and the goose boy, Now he lay on his belly not five feet from the pair, sitting on their trusty log. When lunchtime rolled around, the rightful princess led with her request to the wind, and off went Conrad's cap, even before he had time to realize she'd begun, much less explain that he had finally figured out that it was only her hair. Once the king heard it all, he melted back into the grass and made his way back to the city. He had a meeting to prepare for. Later, as the rightful princess opened the door to the shack she could barely afford with her barely existent job, two things surprised her the moment she stepped inside. The warm air grating her from the crackling fire in the corner and the king sitting in the other. Instinctively, the rightful princess bowed low and the king smiled, noting her perfect manners. He had followed her through the gate and into the fields, the king began. Why was she doing these things? She was obviously more than just some traveler that the princess found along the road what was her story? The rightful princess opened her mouth, but then she remembered the blood on the handkerchief from her mother and the oath she had taken out of desperation. She hung her head. She couldn't say, I mean sworn an oath to never tell anyone. Already she had lost someone she cared about through this whole thing. She wouldn't lose another. The king looked at her, stood and nodded. Whatever it was, it was eating her up inside. Sometimes, Secrets have a power over us that we can only dispel by saying them out loud, even if no one's listening. With a kind smile, the king urged the princess to do just that. She could speak it into her pillow, to a doll, or even the stove, he said, drumming on the iron stove in the corner of the room. With tears, she nodded, thanking the king as he paused briefly in the open doorway. The monarch looked back at the pitiful girl and exited the shack. Outside, the servant that had traveled with the princess, the princess betrothed, watched from an adjacent building as the king left the rightful princess's shack and ducked down an alley. She had had the king followed all day and knew he was poking around the princess. The servant sighed. She should have killed the princess when they were on the road, but getting the soldiers to do that much might have been a step too far. She groaned. Looks like she was going to spend the night before her wedding cleaning up this mess after all. Meanwhile, Back in the shack, the princess sat weeping. Tomorrow, the servant who had taken her place would be married to the prince, and she would officially take over the princess's life. There would be no coming back from that. The king, though he seemed nice, would likely just have her silenced rather than admit the deception. While the princess spent another morning in the fields with little Conrad, the servant would become royalty. She tried what the king said, Confessing her fears and sorrows and tying the whole situation to the stove. But it didn't really make her feel much better. She had underestimated the world and its cruelty in her first venture outside her mother's protection. She knew that when she got back on her feet, she would learn from this experience and be stronger and better for it. Unfortunately, she would never get the chance. The next morning, the soldiers kicked in the door of her shack, put her in irons, and dragged her out into the street. She was charged with conspiracy to commit treason, and she would be executed. Finally, it was time. All the nobles had gathered for the wedding ceremony. The disguised servant stood facing the prince, the room silent, waiting. It was then that the king was interrupted by the sound of marching boots and clanking armor toward the back. The servant about to say her vows, looked back, and her eyes widened. She shook her head frantically at the guards, the ones she had sent out just that morning, but they didn't meet her eyes. Ah, good, they're here. The king beamed. He turned to the prince and the servant. There was, it seemed, a traitor in their midst. He had learned of the arrest just that morning, and the girl who would be his daughter-in-law, and the future queen, was right to command it. Now, Here they were, with a woman who was plotting to kill a princess. The servant looked down at the tear-streaked cheeks of the rightful princess, standing in between two soldiers. This had played out better than she could have possibly imagined. The king turned to his daughter-in-law-to-be, and asked a question of her. What should they do with traitors in their kingdom? The servant said she really didn't know. She was just a princess. But if the king was asking... She had eh, a few ideas. One, get a barrel, a big one, with plenty of room to move around in. Two, nail a bunch of nails into the barrel, so that the inside was just full of spiky death. Three, throw someone who would dare betray the king's trust and throne into the barrel naked. And then, finally, the barrel should be attached to the back of a horse, and just rolled along through town, so that all the people could listen to her slowly die, and learn what happened when they plotted against the throne. The prince stood wide-eyed, and more than a little terrified. Oh my gosh, did you just think of that off the top of your head, or do you have some running list of messed up ways to torture people? He asked, looking at his wife-to-be. The servant in disguise thought a moment. "Eh." A little of column A, a little of column B, I suppose, she chuckled. The king, however, was neither wide-eyed nor surprised. He nodded, turning to his soldiers. That sounded like a fitting punishment. Take her away. The servant turned back to the prince. Now where were they? Oh yeah, getting married. She motioned to the king, but he was stepping away from her. She was about to ask what was going on when she felt the irons on her wrist. I was in the alleyway last night, said the king. He had heard the most amazing story through a vent pipe of a stove. The storyteller didn't know anyone was listening, so she wasn't breaking any oaths, but she had told a powerful story a story of her only friend betraying her and taking her throne the moment they were out of view of home. His personal messengers had returned mere minutes before the wedding from the woman's mother, carrying a description of the rightful princess, a description that matched the woman the false princess had arrested that very morning. The king turned to the servant. As for the friend, she just decided her own punishment, did she not? He nodded to his soldiers, find a barrel, and get hammering. On cue, the servants rushed to the true princess and escorted her to her room, helping her bathe, change, and they led her back to the ceremony. A hush fell over the gathered crowd as the rightful princess stepped into the place of the servant who had betrayed her. Days ago, this was the place the princess never thought she'd be. And in that moment, her thoughts were not of her former servant, but of her mother and all she had done for her daughter in this world. In her heart, she remembered the drops of blood on the handkerchief, and the words from Falada, a faint smile glowed across the princess's face as she stood tall, remembering who she was. She took the prince's outstretched hand. If this my mother knew, she'd be proud of how I grew. That is it for this week, but next week we'll be starting the story of Tristan and Isold from the Arthurian legends. I want to say thanks to Blue Reader, Seattle Garcia, Thalia Spoon, Orphean Reprise, Prongs 01, Robert 731, FMA 04, Viking Heritage, Juneberries 171727, Pod Antics, Mercedes Mel, T-Cow, Matty Freak 25, and Yoshi Sound for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening and writing a review. And if you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place. And you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Lobus homin. It's a Portuguese werewolf. Say you and your friends are looking for something to do on a Friday night, and you decide, hey, it might be fun to become werewolves. But the downside is you don't know any werewolves who can bite you. Well, you're in luck. You just have to go to the crossroads where you stand in the center and spin around five times, and then drop to the ground howling and groveling. The good news is that you'll probably come up as a werewolf. The bad news is that if you wanted to be this super strong variety that fights vampires or gets in love triangles with angsty teens, well, it's not that type of werewolf. Seeing as I probably wouldn't be thrilled to wake up in a field next to a half eaten deer covered in blood, the Lobus Homin is probably my werewolf choice it's a pretty chill little creature that's about two feet tall. So, it's less of a wolf and more so like a Pomeranian walking around on its hind legs. If you're thinking that at least you'll be kind of a cute little dog, don't get too excited, because the two foot tall werewolf is also balding. It has like the haircut of a monk with the top of their head bald. There is one perk though. The little werewolf has relatively large feet covered in plush hair. It says that because of the feet, it has an advantage in sneaking, but... A more enticing detail, for me at least, is that it apparently feels like the creature is walking everywhere in fluffy slippers. As you can probably guess, this creature is not a threatening one, and it actually avoids any contact with humans until morning, when it changes back. I read in some places that it's terrifying to children, but maybe it's just that it's a two-foot-tall, balding, introverted dog, walking around in its slippers, just wanting to be left alone. There is some risk when turning into the creature, when going to the crossroads at night, you have to be pretty sure that a wolf was the last one to walk around in the crossroads. If not, then that Friday night where everyone was going to turn into a werewolf just got slightly more weird. Because, depending on the last creature to walk through, you could turn into a balding were horse, were donkey, were pig, basically a were anything. Which, you may be a weird were creature for the night, but at least you'll be comfortable because, as far as I can tell, you get to keep the slippers. <laughs> That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.